Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 13th of July. And on today's briefing, we respond to a question posed by a briefing listener. Love the podcast as part of my morning routine. Can you guys consider the toxicity of Botox? So we're going to answer Jacqueline's question, is Botox toxic? You really want to see someone that thinks of your face in the long term, not the short, quick hit. A deep dive on Botox in today's briefing. Before that, Tash Belling is here from Your Morning Agenda and Australia Today with Steve Price with the latest headlines. Good morning, Tom. Well, today the federal government's expected to announce a boost to financial support for struggling Sydney residents and businesses as the lockdown looks set to be extended past Friday. Given where the numbers are, it's not likely, in fact, almost impossible for us to get out of lockdown on Friday. So that's the Premier Gladys Berejiklian announcing 112 cases yesterday. The Burnett Institute has said that Sydney will need to go into an even tougher lockdown to control this outbreak, Tash. New cash flow grants worth tens of thousands of dollars for struggling Sydney businesses are expected to be announced by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison today. Payments to people who have lost work because of the shutdown are set to increase the current payments by at least $100 a week, taking them up to $600. So that's not far off the old JobKeeper rate of $750. Yeah, and apparently the state government and the federal government are going to chip in together to fund the payments um, after the state government were almost about to introduce their own JobKeeper-style subsidy program before the federal government came to the party. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, Tom, because I think a number of uh, justifications for not a harder lockdown across New South Wales has been the fact that they need to keep some so-called non-essential retail open because Mm. people have to go to work because they're casual workers. There isn't any government support at the moment and they have to pay their bills. Right. So you think this new subsidy program might allow them to justify the tougher lockdown. Of course, you've got the financial support for people. They're not being forced by their bosses to go in when it's not safe to do so, or that casual employees know that they've got that government support there. And so therefore, if they are feeling unwell, they do get tested or they stay at home because the bottom line is people are doing it incredibly tough and so are businesses. And for many of them, they don't have a choice. The expert panel advising Australia's vaccine rollout has decided not to change its advice for young people and the AstraZeneca vaccine. The Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, ATAGI, met last night to consider whether they should relax the guidelines for people who should get the jab in light of the growing risk of getting COVID in Sydney. Yes, so since last month, ATAGI has maintained that the AstraZeneca jab is safer for people over 60 and that younger people should get Pfizer. But as they've maintained that advice... The vaccine rollout chief, General John Fruin, has been giving media interviews, standing by the Prime Minister's advice that encouraged young people to talk to their GPs about getting the AstraZeneca jab. Those people between 18 and 40 uh, need to make a decision now about whether they want to take their chances with the Delta virus or whether they want to get down, have a discussion with their GPs and get AstraZeneca. And within 24 hours of him saying that, news comes of another AstraZeneca death. A 72-year-old woman from South Australia died of TTS after getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. This is the fourth death so far from around 5 million doses of the AstraZeneca jab. You can't blame people for being confused and worried, can you, when you're getting different advice from Atagi, the vaccine chief, the Prime Minister, and all these other health experts like Jeanette Young in Queensland and the AMA. It's been a complete debacle from a messaging point of view, Tom. Everyone's confused from whether... 
they should get the jab? Is the risk from a vaccine greater than the risk of getting COVID? I think the whole narrative has changed now because we're seeing what's unfolding in Sydney. The fact that as a young person, would you line up straight away now and get AstraZeneca? I would. Exactly. So the whole narrative has changed. The problem is, is the messaging has been incredibly confusing from the federal government on this and the key health advisors. They keep on saying we're listening to the health advice, Mm. but there are so many different schools of thought. And as we know right now, the most important thing is to get a jab because your risk of dying or getting seriously ill from COVID is so much greater. As we can see right now, look at how many young people are critically ill in hospital in Sydney. And in Melbourne, an apartment complex has gone into lockdown as Victoria and South Australia go on alert after two COVID-positive removalists travelled from Sydney. We do have to report two separate further incursions of COVID. I'm not surprised that we're seeing some flying embers coming in from New South Wales. That was the Victorian Deputy Health Secretary, Jerome Weimar, speaking there. Now, these removalists visited an apartment complex in the Melbourne suburb of Maribyrnong, and those residents are being now told to stay at home for two weeks after the whole complex was listed as an exposure site. And the removalists then travelled to South Australia, and the McLaren Vale family they helped move are now also in isolation. And Melbournians have been warned of several other possible exposure sites in the city's north, centred around Craigieburn and Broad Meadows. Two members of a Melbourne family that recently arrived from Sydney also tested positive for COVID, but thankfully were in isolation at the time. And Prince William has joined England football officials in condemning racist abuse that targeted players who missed the penalties that cost the game against Italy in yesterday's Euro football final. The Prince, who was at the match with his wife and gorgeous son George, said in a statement he is sickened at online trolls who targeted the three black English players who missed the penalty shots. Here's how England's manager responded to the abuse. They should be, and I I think they are, incredibly proud of what they've done. For some of them to be abused is unforgivable, really. And Tars Channel 7 have had to apologise for a Facebook post. Now, this Facebook post was about the online abuse, but the status in the post said three black players failed in the penalty shootout. So it essentially encouraged people to pile on uh, and they've had to say that that was a regrettable mistake. It's extraordinary and we've even seen the British Prime Minister overnight, Boris Johnson, come out very, very firmly and say this kind of behaviour and racist abuse is completely unacceptable. It's terrible that this is still happening in 2021. Yeah, it is. It's surprising, isn't it, that you even have to come out and say that that's horrific and and not to do it. Tash, thanks for joining us on the briefing today. You can catch Tash on Australia Today with Steve Price and your morning agenda on your favourite podcast app. Tom, can I ask, you had me on today because you're talking about Botox? (laughs) You look great. Your face didn't move the whole briefing. I'm Botox free, but, you know, whatever makes someone happy. All right, thank you for listening to The Briefing, especially if you're a listener that listens every day. We love hearing from you directly via our Instagram DMs as well. Today's briefing topic was inspired by a question from a briefing regular, Jacqueline. Now, she asked this question about Botox. Love the podcast. It's part of my morning routine. Can you guys consider the toxicity of Botox? I see a lot of people wanting to get it. I included as I wanted to fix my clenched jaw um, and headaches, but my partner said it was one of the most toxic things. I didn't know this and I assume a lot of others didn't either. It would be really interesting if you guys could explore this. So it sounds like we're going to be solving a bit of a, a domestic argument there between Jacqueline and her partner. 
And it's understandable because a key ingredient in Botox is botulinum toxin A. Now, that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, let's find out more about that because we know that uh, Botox has become incredibly popular since it was approved for cosmetic use 20 years ago. The industry's massive. The College of Cosmetic Surgery in Australia put spending on cosmetic procedures at more than a billion dollars a year with around a third of that on Botox. And increasingly, it's being used by younger Australians in an effort to prevent ageing. But as Jacqueline said, it's not just for cosmetic uses. It has much bigger volumes being used for medical uses, such as treatment for twitches and stiffness and spasms and migraines, and also, importantly, helping children with cerebral palsy. So to answer all the questions about Botox and whether it can be toxic, we have Dr. Cara McDonald on the briefing. She's a medical doctor and she specialised in dermatology. Uh, she runs a dermatology practice in Sunbury near Melbourne. Cara, thank you so much for joining us. So what is Botox? What's the key ingredient and is it toxic? It is a toxin that has been manufactured from botulinum, which is the bacteria that gives us tetanus. So everyone knows that prior to vaccination, tetanus would cause lockjaw and eventually um, stop you breathing. So if you have systemic botulinum toxin toxicity, essentially it freezes all the muscles in our body and that's why um, it can end up killing you. But what they've discovered is that if they manufacture the toxin is a very pure form. So they do take it from the bacteria and then it's injected just into localised muscles. Then it will actually prevent that specific muscle from contracting for a short-term period. And then over time that gets broken down by the body and that muscle will work again, which is the same as what would happen if you were kept alive uh, on a ventilator if you had um, tetanus. Essentially, yes, it is a toxin, but in a very controlled environment, we know that it stays just where it is placed in the body. And it's quite complicated, but the way it works is by being taken up into the nerve endings and stopping the signal that goes from the nerve ending to the muscle to make that muscle contract until the body breaks it down. It's been popular in cosmetic use for about 20 years when it was first approved for this yes, reason. <laughs> but before then, how important was it as a health measure, especially with helping children? It still is used uh, for many medical indications. So for cosmetic use, we use it to reduce or soften the strength of certain muscles in the face. But for medical reasons, we use it for all sorts of things that are causing problems by excess muscle contraction. So some of the examples of this are migraines, which can be caused by muscle contraction in the back and in the neck and in the scalp. Excess sweating, so we use it under the arms, in the armpits, and it actually stops the little muscles that create the sweat under our arms. And it can give people six months of reduced sweating under the arms, which is amazing for people who are dripping every day. We also use it for grinding and clenching, a condition called bruxism, which again gives people headaches, jaw pain, broken teeth. And then, as you mentioned, in children, so people with cerebral palsy or even after a stroke, uh, where they have muscle contraction, which is limiting their function, we can use uh, the same toxin to release that specific muscle and give these people increased function. So in terms of the doses we use in cosmetic treatment, it's actually tiny compared to what we use in some of these other medical indications. 
Okay, well, that goes to the point of Jacqueline's question to us. She wants to use it for a clenched jaw issue, but her partner said it was super toxic. So how would it work in in that situation of a clenched jaw? So there's a muscle called the masseter, which is if you if you chomp down sort of with your hand on the angle of your jaw, you can feel that masseter muscle. It usually bulges out. And people who have this condition known as bruxism end up with this kind of vicious cycle thing where that muscle becomes very, very strong. They tend to clench overnight, but also when they're stressed and often without even thinking. And so like going to the gym, you kind of build that muscle up over time and it gets stronger and stronger. And so every night then it's stronger and you get to the point where it can cause a lot of tension. So people often wake up with headaches. They wake up with pain in their jaw. So it can cause damage to the actual joint in the jaw. So you can end up with arthritis long-term. And a lot of people end up with broken teeth as well. And dentists will use a splint overnight, but they'll also commonly refer us patients for injection of that muscle to try and weaken it and decrease the strength of this clenching. And how muscle relaxant injections work is a bit like putting your arm in a plaster. The muscles, if they're not being used, will shrink over time. And so the longer you've done it for or the more you want to shrink that muscle, uh, the longer you'll get before you can build up that full strength again. That leads into a question I had about long-term use. A lot of people I know in their early 30s around my age are starting to do it um, in what they call preventative ways so that perhaps if they have Botox over the years consistently, they hope that they won't actually need to have it as much in their 50s or 60s. There seems to be two schools of thought about this, though, whether not moving the muscles means that they effectively stop working. So I'd like to know what you think about this. Is having it early on actually going to prevent us having wrinkles later on? Well, yes. Look, there are two sides to this story. So the way I like to explain it is that what we're using this for is to reduce the strength, as I said, of those strong muscles. So if you look at your mother and all you see on her face is like two deep lines between her brows, like she's been hit with an axe kind of thing, Hmm. then you know that that's a distraction and, you know, the rest of her face may be, you know, basically line free or really good for her age, but then she may have something that stands out as different. So I'm all for preventing the dominant signs of ageing. So if you've got something out of balance or out of keeping, that's where it's really useful to start early and prevent that from happening. The problem is that the younger generation, shall we say, seem to think that it's meant to freeze your face and they are starting to come in and, you know, have a flicker of movement back in in their forehead and say, my wrinkles are back. And they don't understand that we're not trying to remove all signs of movement from the face. We're trying to prevent the deep lines from occurring. The funny thing is that When you are trying to communicate emotions such as joy or happiness or love, you're trying to communicate that to another person, you can't do that without a combination of muscles working at once. So if you take out the brows being able to be raised up at all, you actually can't signal joy to someone else because joy is raised eyebrows and a smile together. Mm. That's what gives you an emotion or, or a sign of joy. So if you take that out, then you actually remove your ability to communicate and also your ability to possibly feel things properly. 
The other thing is we actually do see that, again, going back to that whole arm in plaster, the longer you remove the movement of a muscle, the smaller it gets. And actually in ageing of the face, that's what gives us that sort of shiny old lady looking forehead is when you've actually taken out all the muscles and the strength of those muscles in the forehead from using it for too long. A lot of people that are having it in their 20s and 30s, they can get away with a face that doesn't really move at all. But if you have those muscles frozen for too long, you're going to thin them out and you're going to look older before your time, which is obviously the opposite to what we're trying to do in these cases. Wow. So by paralyzing those muscles in your face for too long, it could make you look older rather than younger. Absolutely. You know, we really see this kind of shiny, thin-skinned look in women who've been having higher doses in that area for a long time. And you start to get this mismatched face as well, where they really lose all movement in that area, but then the rest of their face is still aging. So it's a real giveaway and a telltale sign. People that are having Botox for cosmetic reasons uh, need to keep it up. You have to keep doing it every three, four, six months, whatever you want. I wanted to ask how it actually leaves the body after that time, because if it is a toxin, is there a chance that we don't know that it is actually building up inside your body or are we able to process it and actually get it out of our systems? Uh, look, there's very good evidence that the body breaks it down and we know exactly when the body's broken it down because it stops working again and you get that movement back. It really comes down to the individual and having a really good medical practitioner who can assess your face properly and really think of your face, what it's going to look like in two years, five years and 10 years. Because unfortunately, there's this whole kind of McDonald's drive through industry out there where, you know, the more they can upsell, the better. You know, it's like, do you want a Coke with that and mm. fries? It's the upsell because they're working on low profit margins and upsell is the end game. And if you're going in and you're being told you need more and you've got a bit of movement back and you shouldn't have any movement and that's your model, then that's what you're going to start doing and you don't know any better. So my advice is that you really want to see someone that thinks of your face in the long term, not the short, quick hit, not the sale in front of them. They want to give you guidance to how to manage things that are specific to your face and keep you balanced and natural looking all the time. That was Dr. Cara McDonald. I found that really interesting that changing the muscles in your face could change your emotions. Yeah, as I'm in this age group of early 30s, I'm noticing increasingly a lot of my peers are deciding to get it. And it's about that long-term use. They think that if they start now, they won't need to inject as much of the stuff in their face in their 50s and 60s. But those long-term effects, I guess we still have to think about that. And while it might not necessarily be a risk, a health effect, Tom, it could really do some big changes to how you look and react to people. Yeah, and it makes total sense what Kara said, that if you paralyse those muscles for quite, you know, some time, you know, potentially years, if you get continued treatment, that they will become weaker. And over the long run, you could look older, defeating the whole purpose. But also great to hear the realistic portrayal of the risks of actually taking that chemical or the toxin into your body and, and how that it's used in much greater quantities for medical purposes. So that's not the big problem. 
Listener.